0: Alrighty, guys, we are uh, we are getting to the end here. If you want to turn in your Bible with me back to Lamentations chapter, well, let's. I guess we're gonna start in chapter four today, move into chapter five. So, if you're just joining us, welcome. My name's Keith, and I am your tour guide on a guided tour of the book of Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations is a little book. It's five chapters. It is poetry. If you looked at it in Hebrew, it would look like that poetry book you had in sixth grade that your English teacher made you read. Remember those? Remember those? You're like, sixth grade, when was that? I know, I know. Um, So um, the the point is we, we forget that the Bible contains different types of literature as well, and just like in English, just like when we enjoy different types of literature, or maybe we don't enjoy certain types of literature, but the Bible comes to us in diverse ways. And uh, we know that that poetry is one of those things, uh, you know, like, like music, its counterpart, poetry and music are ways that God allows us to express experiences in human life that are hard to quantify. Uh, that's why probably there's some song, sometime that you heard in your life that connects with a season of your life, or a memory, or a sorrow, or a joy, and, and uh, even Christmas music. You know, why do we like Christmas music? You know, I'm, uh, where was I sitting? I was sitting somewhere in a restaurant last week, and uh, Andy Williams comes on the Spotify channel or whatever they were playing. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And before I know it, I, I'm like thinking about my living room growing up and the little, you know, train that we used to have around the tree. It just, music has an ability to, to do that, to connect with memories and seasons and times, both, both in a way that's positive and enjoyable and in a way that's actually very sorrowful and painful depending on the, the nature of it. So, It's not surprising in light of how God made poetry and music to connect with the human experience that we have books in our Bible that are poetic because what they're doing is they are connecting with those parts of the human experience that are hard to express in in prose or in some other way. So the book of Lamentations, as the name implies, is an extended lament. Lament is simply an expression of grief. And uh, what's going on in... uh, the book here. Well, let's let's go to the studio audience here. Okay, what is going on in the book of Lamentations that uh, that there would be lament, grief being expressed? Talk to me here. What's going on? The fall of Jerusalem, right? After uh, centuries of prominence, right? And uh, the the Israelites take the land, and then the kings, and then they begin to decline, and they 're not following God and and they 're turning away from his law and so decade after decade, century after century, God sends these prophets to call the people back to faithfulness to Him and to an exclusive allegiance to worship Him and to His ways and laws and um, The people largely turned a deaf ear uh, one, of, one of the takeaways guys from from this book is recognizing. Just how seriously God takes our disobedience and our, uh, our divided hearts as we you know we're trying to follow Him, and oh look at this, you know and we're distracted in that and even rebellious in that. Okay, so so Jerusalem is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. Why? Yeah, it, it was their sin, right? And over and over and over, the prophets called them back. You better repent. You better repent. You better repent, or else. And then it was like, if you don't repent, this is going to happen. If you don't repent, this is going to happen. If don't, don't repent, this is gonna, it's just like your kids, right? You keep doing that. You know, you lose the Xbox. You keep losing it, and that's what happened. Is uh, in uh, the beginning, about 601 uh, BC, right around that time, uh, the Babylonians started a campaign against the southern kingdom of Judah. That came in three different ways, and finally in 585, 586, somewhere in that range, uh, the Babylonians breached the wall around Jerusalem. Uh, they had already surrounded them for a season, so they had cut off their food supply, they had cut off their water supply, that was one of those war techniques in those days, and that's why when Lamentations talks about children starving in the streets, that's that's why that was happening. And so they come in, and then they set fire, they... they pull out the um can you imagine it just just you're sitting there and you're watching that temple just destroyed just on fire people looting pulling out the holy furniture of god and running it off and putting it in to the house of their gods and you remember in the book of daniel remember belshazzar has a feast right he wants to impress all his friends so what does he do he goes and gets some of that that holy the holy utensils from the temple that they stole from Jerusalem, and they say, "Hey, let's have a big party and get drunk to our gods," you know, in in victory over the God of Yahweh, right? And so that's what's going on. And and Jeremiah, who has been one of the prophets in that season, one of the longest standing prophets, um, he, he prophesied almost as long as I've been around. <laughs> uh, I'm in my 40s. He ministers for over 40 years of faithful calling the people back. They turn a deaf ear. God says, okay. And um, he allows the Babylonians to come in. So Jeremiah picks up his pen and he writes a song, a poem of lament. Lament is the expression of grief And and while we might think of the expression of grief as, you know, someone died or this accident happened, one of the takeaways of the book of Lamentations is that, you know, grief and lament ought to be focused primarily on the fact that we have sinned and we ought to experience an appropriate grief and sorrow for our sin. Um, You can't repent if you don't feel bad for what what you've done, right? We agree with that? So godly sorrow leads to repentance, the Scripture tells us. So godly sorrow is in part of what this book is designed to help us to see. Now remember, the the book is, is a bit of a mirror image, if we look at chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, they, they, they look like mirror images of each other. And you're going to see that today, that chapter 5 in many ways mirrors chapter 1, chapter 2 in many ways mirrors, mirrors chapter 4, and chapter 3, if you're following me, is right in the middle as the center element of the book and, and hence takes the emphasis of the book as we've seen. So uh, let's go back to chapter 4. And uh, just remind ourselves uh, of some of these themes. I know it's been a couple of weeks uh, here since we looked at this. So uh, we see in chapter 4 some of these themes that um, uh, we've seen in the first two chapters. How horrible destruction is, that the destruction of the land was God's discipline. We looked last time about the sins of the prophets and the priests. That this was not just the people rebelling. The leadership of the nation was corrupt. Uh, talking to this cohort of pastors this week in the, the seminar that I, I got to spend with them, and, and one of the things we talked about a lot is how um, spiritual leadership is so essential for the proper functioning of the local church and and that what we see here is that uh, part of the reason the people went astray is because their leadership went astray. And uh, so there is an indictment on the prophets and the priests, the elders of the nation here. And yet we see uh, hope even in uh, the future of that there. Um, Whoops, where do we go? There we go. So um, we saw some of these last time: how the, the horrors of war, the liability of those spiritual le- leaders. And, and remember, he says this back in chapter four, verse six: Judah's sin is worse than Sodom. Uh, th- that's not there as a footnote. Th- that's there as a main point. Now, uh, th- these are not in your notes, by the way. So if you're going, where are these in your notes? They're not in your. This is a review. This is chapter four. And um, but that just that just reminds us, guys, that um, God takes our sin as believers very seriously. And the sin of Judah in rejecting uh, what they knew, rejecting their God, uh, the Bible says here is a sin committed that is worse than Sodom. And if you've read Genesis and you've read what was going on in Sodom, that's saying a whole lot. Um, So let's not not walk away from the book of Lamentation going, oh, so sad for them, isn't it sad the temple broke, you know, and the, the city... We should walk away from lamentation, saying, "I need to take my sin more seriously than I am, and I need to see my sin and its ugliness and horror." And um, in fact, there's a progression here, right? The more I rightly see the horror and evil of my sin, the more I will experience a godly sorrow which leads to a godly repentance that leads to hope and change, right? So if, if I don't start with seeing my sin as evil and wicked as it is, that impacts how I feel about it in sorrow, which impacts my repentance, which impacts change. So, so a, great, a great question to ask yourself, to be honest, if you feel like you're, you're floundering or struggling in some sin struggle is, um, what is my view of that? Uh, One of the things that happens when we do the same sinful thing over and over and over is we start becoming numb to the horror of it. And maybe you've seen this in your own life, like I've seen it in mine. You know, the, the first time something happens, you're like, "Oh, that's horrible! What am I doing?" You know, and and if you don't fight that battle, and you get a little bit comfortable with it, what happens is your conscience no longer reacts strongly against it, and if it doesn't react strongly, then you're probably not going to feel bad. And if you don't feel bad, you're probably not going to repent. And if you don't repent, you don't change. And the whole process starts over. Does that make sense? So so part of what lamentation is designed to do, and I think this is a good exercise, is to just put our sin back under the microscope in, in comparison with the holiness of God and to see our sin for the, the ugliness that it is. One of the dangerous things, too, as long as we're talking about it here, one of the most dangerous things in um, In our walks with God is sinning against our conscience in a way that our conscience no longer reacts strongly against things. Uh, the Bible actually says there's a place you can get to where your conscience is seared and and you know if you sear a steak or you sear some other food item, you know it's like man it's it, it's super hot and that that top layer is just gone right and that's what the Bible is saying about. Uh, your your conscience can be seared in a way that it doesn't operate the way it was intended. And so we, we don't want to sin against our conscience. So, okay, with that in mind, let's turn the page to chapter 5, having thought a little bit about where we've been. Now, again, chapter 1 is going to mirror chapter 5, 2, chapter 4, and then chapter 3 is our center point. So as we're reading chapter 5, I know chapter 1 was a long time ago, but we'll see some of those same themes here as um, Jeremiah wraps up his poem. Now it's interesting. you've got chapter five open there. Uh, just just back up, speaking of chapter one, let, let's let's re- remind ourselves here um, We've got chapter one, how chapter two, how Chapter three, I, chapter 4 how okay and and so it's how how or remember remember the sense of how is like how can this happen why can this happen right so why why chapter four why stuck in the middle i right you say what what on earth are we talking about it's poetry poets do things like this to 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 draw us in and give us attention the first two chapters how could this happen why could this happen Chapter 1, Lord, I'm in the middle of it. What's going on? Jeremiah's personal. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath, Jeremiah says, right? Now we come out of the mirror image. Chapter 4 starts with what? Why? How? How could this happen? Okay, so why, why, why? So what would you expect chapter 5 to start with if it's a mirror image? Why, 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 why? Right, and if you're totally confused, talk to your neighbor. Um okay. You should if it's a mirror image, it should be why, 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 right? And I is in the middle. Why, 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 why. But it's why, why, I, why, remember. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. And you're saying, no, no, no. It shouldn't be remember, it should be why. Because it messes up the mirror. Exactly. When poetry changes symmetry remember symmetry i'm sorry does this feel like sixth grade poetry class when, when when there's supposed to be something that's a mirror image and there's something that's off we go that's off that's wrong but but it's it's exactly it's the poet's way of saying something's different pay attention so why 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 uh-uh. it's why 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 remember because we're supposed to say why is it different and this is Jeremiah's way of saying, this is our takeaway. This is where we have to get. When, whenever, First of all, why is the book, why, why, how, how, why, why, how, how? Because that's what we do when tragedy hits, right? That's how we sound. When you get the cancer diagnosis, when your friend dies, when tragedy hits, when you lose your job, when, when you know, you get a report that one of your adult children has done something foolish, well, that's what we do, right? We say, how can this happen? Why that, that's what we sound like. And what we need to do instead of saying why, why, how, how, is to remember. Do you see that? That's what we need to do. It's not, it's not bad to ask why or how. But what we've seen, remember that, that center element, chapter 3, Jeremiah's whole constitution, his whole heart changed when he stopped asking why, why, how, how, and he began to remember the character of God. And that, that changed his whole disposition, his whole emotional state changed when he remembers the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed, never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion says my soul, therefore I have hope in Him. It's all about remembering. So in your grief, in your sorrow, don't spend all your time saying how, 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 you know, how, how, and why, why. At some point you have to remember. And remembering is when really amazing things spiritually happen in grief. Now, just a footnote to that, and we need to do this sometime. There are times... Okay, if I... If I lose my keys, I forget where I put them, and then I find them, that's called Pastor Keith is getting older and forgetful, right? Um, There are times in the Bible that the Bible says if you forget something, it's sin. It's sinful. And it's interesting, if you go all the way back to Genesis, and you trace that theme of forgetting and remembering, you will see that your and my spiritual health often hinges on remembering certain things and not forgetting other things, right? How many times does Moses say to the people, don't forget, don't forget, I'm going to die tomorrow, don't forget, lest you go astray, right? And Jeremiah reminds us of that. So why, 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 why? It's not why, 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 why. It's why, why, why. Remember, because remembering is part of the takeaway. In your grief, in your sorrow, in your sadness, actively remember the character and promises of God. Okay? That's one of our takeaways. So let's go back here. Uh, that And again, if you're paying attention... That's what's so beautiful about poetry. And remember, I'm a recovering engineer, so poetry is like, I feel like I'm in kindergarten learning poetry, right? But it's awesome. It actually has kind of an analytical sort of mathematical... Anyway, you don't want to hear about that. Um, now, now, here's what's interesting. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. That's interesting. This this is not so much remembering who god is although that's a theme he's saying remember lord he's saying lord will you remember us as we're remembering you now will you remember us remember what has befallen us look and see our reproach now, now listen to this our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. And he goes on to talk about that. So he's saying, Lord, look at our horrible condition. Look at people taking advantage of us. Look at how bad our life is. L- look at the poverty. Look at the affliction. Lord, please remember us. And uh, and this is interesting because uh, just hold your place in the book of Lamentations back up to the book of Jeremiah, r- which was right in front of the book. So just back up a few pages. Look at... Um, Remember, Jeremiah has spent his whole life caring for these people, and ministering to these people, preaching to the people. And um, a lot of the themes of Jeremiah's ministry show up here again in verse 21. Or, or, excuse me, in the, in the book of uh, Jeremiah, show up in the book of Lamentations. So in chapter 14, verse 21, we, we see some of these same themes that Jeremiah had been ministering to the people, right? So look at chapter 14 of of the book of Jeremiah now, verse 21. Okay, now in context here, um, uh, listen to this. Do not despise us, Lord, for your own name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember and do not annul your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain? Or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord, our God? Therefore we hope in you, for you are the one who has done all these things. See, way back in the book of Jeremiah, during his ministry, he's telling the people, this is what you need to do. You need to cry out to God and say, remember us, remember your covenant, and bring our hearts back to a place where we're walking with you. And, Uh, He says something similar in chapter 15, verse 15, as Jeremiah appeals to God now and says, Lord, you're the one who knows, O Lord. Remember me. Take notice of me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake I endure reproach. So in this context, Jeremiah is calling out to God saying, I've been afflicted. I've been suffering. The people are persecuting me. Remember me, the prophet, Jeremiah says. So so this theme of remembering, we see it in the book of Jeremiah. And here we see Jeremiah leading the people to say, Lord, remember us, remember our affliction. Uh, And then, of course, um, that center point in Lamentation itself, verse 19, remembering is the theme that kind of turns things around. So again, the point is in grief and sorrow, we, we want to remember God and we want to be we want to be mindful that he remembers us and will be faithful to his word. Um, second kind of point here in uh, in verses two and following. Again, we get a description of uh, of some of the the challenges and destruction and details and and um, he says there in chapter five, verse one. Remember, our Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. So, Lord, have mercy on us. Pay attention to us, help us, rescue us, remember us, and let me tell you why we need rescue. And then he's going to recount again some of these horrors. Just look with me here. Look at verse 2. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. That's what happens when war happens, right? Someone comes in and destroys your house and takes your stuff, and uh, the people are calling out saying, They've taken our inheritance. They've taken our land. They've, they're inhabiting our houses. They've taken our houses there. Down in verse 18, he says something very similar. He says, Mount Zion is desolate. Foxes prowl into it. You know. So there's this great holy building, the temple and the temple mount and all that. And now you can see it in shambles and like animals are coming in at night looking for food and shelter and whatnot. And uh, the land and the houses have been utterly destroyed secondly we see the death of loved one verse verse 3 we have become orphans without a father you have children whose fathers have been killed in battle and in the assault of the babylonians our mothers are like widows so there's moms and dads are dying leaving children without parents Uh, we see Thirdly, the poverty and exhaustion of war and exile. Look at verse 4. We have to pay for our drinking water. And you're like, yeah, I do too. I make a check to Amud." I know, I know. That's not, not what it's talking about. Um, it, it's saying that uh, in order to survive, especially as the Babylonians were cutting off uh, supplies of food and water, they were having to go to other nations and um, rely on them for their basic necessities. And we can go back and trace some of the history of that with the nation of Judah. You remember those of you that were in my Isaiah study a few years ago, we talked about that, how as Judah is being assaulted and surrounded first by Assyria and then again by Babylon, one of the things the kings of Judah were tempted to do instead of trust the Lord was to make these alliances with other foreign countries, which God had forbid them to do. But they did that. Some of them were tempted to do that. Why? Because they're saying, if we don't make an alliance with another country, Assyria is going to wipe us out. So we're going to, we're going to um, get in partnership with these other nations to try to push back against Assyrian and later on Babylonian pressure. So that's what's talked, being talked about here, right? That we're having to make these alliances to rely on other nations. We're paying for our water. We're paying for our wood. Our pursuers are at our necks. You can picture the Babylonians assaulting day after day, year after year, even, and uh, and finally sort of starving out the people. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. Well, we know we can picture that in and uh, how it looked at here. But but just just think with me for a minute. You and I can feel like that too, can't we? Uh, maybe it's not because. You know, Babylon is knocking on our door. But one of the things that happens in grief and in suffering and in sorrow is we just feel worn out. I mean, grief is exhausting business, isn't it? And uh, we see here uh, the people, Jeremiah, reflecting the people, just talking about they're worn out, they're tired, there's no rest. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. There's the reference there to those uh, alliances that they've made to try to sustain themselves. And then the people, that, that they're looking back to previous generations now. Our fathers sinned, and they're no more, but, but we've borne their iniquities. And you think about that when you read in your Bible reading plan this year. When you read the kings and the chronicles, those history books, and it's, you know, this king and he reigned for this many years and he he didn't honor the Lord or he did honor the Lord and then he died his mother's name was this and then so and so came to power and you're like, what on earth am I supposed to get? It? It's a nice history lesson, right? One of the things you're supposed to get even in addition to the history lesson is to see the patterns of the people. And very often, very often an ungodly generation uh, leaves sinful residual, re- leaves a sinful legacy for that next generation. And very often, you know, the parents didn't honor the Lord, the kids don't honor the Lord because they're inheriting that same uh, that same methodology and even some of the consequences. Now, occasionally, you'll see, you know, King Josiah did not walk in the ways of his fathers, right? But he honored the Lord. And so you do see that. But the sad reality is... Um, We see in this generation the children inheriting the iniquities of the parents. And that certainly was true. Verse 8, slaves rule over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. Again, because they had cut off a lot of the food and water. Uh, People are starving. People are malnourished. So war is horrible, isn't it? War is horrible. Uh, We look at what's going on in the Middle East right now. We look at what's going on uh, ongoing in parts of Ukraine. Uh, We still see some of these same sorts of features because war is horrible. So the details of disgrace and destruction, the people are crying out to God, pay attention to us, remember us, and and they're, they're cataloging all the things that they are going through the horror of death and wicked mistreatment. This gets worse, guys. Verse 11. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the cities of Judah. And yes, that means exactly what you think it means. this is, These are Babylonian soldiers taking advantage of Jewish women in horrible ways. Verse 12, princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill. So remember, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they took the best of the young men, and what did they do? They didn't kill them. Why not? Yeah, that's, that's great labor, isn't it, right? So they they kill all the old guys, and they kill all the guys that, that can't be helpful to the nation, and they take the young men, the, the strong member Daniel, right? They're well-looking, educated, talented. They take the cream of the crop. They take them back to Babylon to serve As slaves, And that's what Jeremiah is crying out here about. The young men are are working at the grinding wheel, meaning they've been taken in as slaves. Youth stumbled under loads of wood. Elders are gone from the gate. Why? Because most of them are dead and they're not in their posts anymore. Young men from their music. Uh, The horror of what's going on here. People being taken advantage of, killed, enslaved. And this is a sad verse. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has, be ter- has been turned into mourning. Now if you're a Baptist, just don't stumble over that verse. Um, there's dancing in the Bible. I hate to be the one that told you about that. But anyway, this, this is godly dancing, alright? This is, this is the Jesus honoring dancing here. But their point, the point is this has happened. People are dying. Starvation, war, destruction, slavery, and this city that used to be the beacon for Yahweh is now in utter ruin. And that mourning, that da- that dancing, that joy has been turned into mourning and grief. In fact, he describes it like this. The crown, verse 16, has fallen from our head. The crown of God's blessing, the crown of God's... Uh, right, And... and you know we're not we're not israelites we're not but, but can, can we just take a moment and, and recognize this is about the lowest point in old testament history that our bibles ever go i mean you know genesis 3 okay that that put the whole i know but once the nation of israel comes up this is about the lowest point where The the people of God, the the place of God in Zion, the temple, the sacrifices, the whole system that was supposed to be the light of the gospel for the world. That was the point of the Jewish nation. And they're here. And it it is profoundly sad. And one of the things that God was working in the midst of all this, you say, why would God do this to his people? Because discipline is for the purpose of repentance, right? That's why God's doing this. Look at verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. That's what, God was, that's what God was doing all this for. It was trying to bring the people to the place where they would see their sin and mourn and grieve over their sin. That's lamentations right there. Biblical lamentation is you, when you say, woe to us, for we have sinned. That's biblical lamentations. We have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. They recognize their sin. There is a pain of heart. Because of this, our heart is faint. Uh, again, godly lament, what's godly lamentation like? You realize your sin. You see your sin in the ugliness of what it is. And then your heart grieves. Your heart is convicted. Your heart is sorrowful. Um, again, it's like, is, don't we do this backward? Um, we get sorry for that touching scene in that Christmas movie that we watch every year. You know, you do that, I do that. You know, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Touching movies are great, but but why why, why do we, are we good at that? But when it comes to I committed this horrible sin, I don't feel bad about it a lot of the time, or I don't feel as bad as I ought to feel about it. What God has done in discipline is to bring the people to see the ugliness of their sin so that they will experience a godly sorrow, a godly lamentation for the purpose of repentance and change right remember what remember what uh, uh Jeremiah says back in chapter three he 's not going to do this forever he 's not going to afflict us forever right he 's afflicting to bring repentance and restoration and um you know, we we usually don't have the benefit of God telling us, by the way, I'm putting this hard thing in your life to discipline you. But we should always ask the question, when God does bring affliction in our life, is there something I need to pay attention to that I'm ignoring? Is there some sin in my life that I'm tolerating? Is there something in my life that i am i ought to be you know reacting strongly against in sin and i've become casual i've become numb to it everybody does it it's no big deal and 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 yet we see the pattern here guys that discipline is designed to bring a clarity over sin to be sorrowful over sin so that we repent so that we grow remember what hebrew says god disciplines us why So we can share in His holiness. All discipline in the moment. It doesn't seem joyful but sorrowful, right? Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, So as we rediscover biblical grief and lament, one of the things we ought to be bringing into our life with more emphasis is a grief and lament over our sin. Yes, we express grief and lament when, when, you know, Grandma Jane dies and when this tragedy happens. We heard this last week. I was, I was with Alan and Amy. Alan walks into my office and said, Hey, I just got a phone call. And uh, a dear single man that they worked with at Chick fil A committed suicide this last week. And, um, That's an occasion for grief, isn't it? That's an occasion for sorrow. We should not be indifferent to that. That is is about as horribly tragic as it gets. Lamentation like that is appropriate. Lamentation like that is appropriate in in sorrow and grief and death of a loved one and in, in a tragedy like that. But what the Bible is trying to demonstrate here is that we should have another type of lament too that we don't have as often and that is a lament and a grief over our sin notice this here he says our eyes uh because of these things our eyes grow dim the hebrew phrase could mean a couple of things it can mean i'm struggling to see because i'm crying so much you ever had a scenario like that you know you've been weeping so much and you can't you can't see the clock on the wall you can't you know read your ipad right because you're just or it, it could be more of a um, of a metaphor in saying it's like I'm blinded by my grief and I can't see hope, right? So it could be more of a literal, I'm crying and I can't see, or more of a metaphorical, I'm so overwhelmed by my grief and I've lost sight of hope. But either way, his point is grief has overwhelmed him, right? Sorrow has overwhelmed. And then this is where This is where the book ends and this is where the author is trying to get the people here. Verse 19, You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do You forget us forever? Why do You forsake us so long? Restore us to You, O Lord, that we may be Restore. What is that? What is verse 21? What is that? That's the part where you talk. What is this? Yeah. Yeah. Bringing them back into fellowship. He's saying, Lord, we we, we want to be back with you. Help. Um, and, And notice, notice verse 20. This is so important. It's not restore our temple, restore our city fix our wall, kick out the Babylonians. It's not like restore us, like fix our stuff, God. It's restore us to, say it, you. That's repentance. That's repentance. When you want God more than you want Him to fix your problem, that's repentance. You see that? When we sin, it's easy to say, Lord, this is miserable because of this consequence and this consequence and this consequence. Lord, I'm sorrowful. Uh, fix, Fix all this. That's not repentance. Repentance is not, I feel bad for what I did because I'm reaping the consequences. Repentance is not, my life is miserable because I made some bad choices. Repentance is when you see through all of those temporal consequences and say, Lord, I want you back. Please, Restore us to you. You see that? That's where this book has been going. It's lamentation not because the city is burning. It's lamentation not because people are dead in the streets. It's lamentation not because Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, and a whole bunch of other young men that we know and love are taken off as slaves. To it's not, Lord, fix this. We're sad. It's they finally get it. They finally get it. Yes, all those things were horrible. Yes, we should weep and lament. But this is the point. Lord, restore us to you. And what brings that about? This is interesting. Talk about what poetry does, right? In Hebrew, usually the verb comes first. Um, So... If uh, if Roger and I were we're gonna go down to Grump's Hamburgers, uh, we would say go to Grump's. We you say go to Grump's. We doesn't make sense. That's because we're not Hebrew speakers, right? Go to Grump's. That's the verb. Well, go is the verb, right? Comes first in the sentence. That's not how we speak in English, right? Normally we would say we go to Grump's, right? The noun comes first, and then the verb. I'm sorry. I'm doing poetry now. I'm doing grammar. Uh, what a horrible teacher I am today. Okay. No, this is important because you need it. You will see this in your Bible. Um, look what 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 it says here, verse 19. You, O Lord, will rule it forever. The pronoun comes first. You, Lord, that's that's out of order in a Hebrew sentence. You don't do that in Hebrew. The verb comes first. So if they put the noun there, it's like, hey, pay attention to this because it's the point. Okay, and, and actually, it's redundant. There's two nouns here: you, O oh Lord, um, and again, that's doubly emphasis. What what the writer is saying, Jeremiah is saying, representing the people, is wait a minute, wait a minute, you rule forever, you Lord rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. What what do you think they just realized here? What is it? yes gene god's in, control. god's in control that's right is that hard to remember when you're hurting is that hard to remember when you're grieving where do you run right so all this filters down you know, horrible things war death destruction wait a minute god's still in charge you O oh lord it's emphatic you reign forever Your sovereign rule is over all. You are in control. You are over all this. This isn't chaos and catastrophe. This is God working out His perfect plan. That's so important. Don't ever forget that your grief is not purposeless. Your sorrow has a point to it, a divinely enabled point. Doesn't feel like that, right? Sorrow feels out of control, chaotic, random, horrible. Sometimes it feels like Jeremiah felt like early on that God's actually, like, you know, beaten up on him, like, God's my enemy. But God is the sovereign ruler over all. He's in control over all these things. There is a purpose, there is a point, and we get that in the next emphasis here, right? He says, Why do you forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to you. Restore us to you. Sometimes we can misinterpret God's discipline as God's forgetfulness. Can't we? We can interpret our affliction as God doesn't care. We can interpret our sorrow as God has forgotten about us. And you see them doing that right here? why have you forgotten why don't you see us Uh, and yet he is overall isn't he you say wait a minute I I thought they just said Lord you rule forever your throne is from generation to generation why do you forget us forever it sounds like they're saying two things it sounds like they're saying Lord we know you're in charge but it seems like you forgot us which one is true He's he's in charge right When you're grieving, when you're sorrowing, when you're struggling, don't you do the same thing? Don't I do the same thing? Lord, I know you're in charge. It sure doesn't feel like it. Lord, I know what your word says, but my emotions are telling me something different. And you got that collision, right? You'll see this collision. You will see in your Bible over and over the collision between what you know is true in your Bible and how you feel. Right? and that's what's going on here they're, they're, rest, they're wrestling with the reality Lord I know you're in charge but it feels like you've forgotten us but watch where this goes restore us I love that it's the Hebrew word shuv that's the word for repent and, and I love it it can be used in, in certain sentences you guys know the word repent means I'm going this way I stop, I turn around, I go the other way Right. it's a U-turn that's repentance right? Sometimes this word is not just like I'm changing my direction, like I'm going to sin, I'm going back to, to the, you know, God's word. Sometimes it takes a, a second gloss, a second type of meaning that's much more personal. And it has the idea of turning us around in order to bring us back. And that's, that's the way it's being used here. He, they're saying to God, restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be Restored. Renew our days as of old. That's where all this has been going, guys. Sorrow is not purposeless. It's for the purpose of repentance in this. And that's where God's been trying to get the people. Now, now, watch this. Verse 22. Unless... you've rejected us forever and are exceedingly angry with us now you got to put yourself in the sandals of the jewish people in this day okay your parents are dead your older brother just got taken off to babylon as a slave Your younger sister has died of starvation and she's lying right there in the dirt and she's getting trampled on by Babylonian soldiers. You look out in the distance. What used to be the temple is a pile of flaming rubble. People are looting the furniture. And you're asking yourself the question, maybe we went too far this time. Maybe we sinned so bad that God says, I'm done with you. So it's, Lord, we know You're sovereign. We've sinned. Restore us. Heal us. We repent. We get it. Why aren't you listening? Maybe because we went too far. You ever felt like that? What I did is beyond the grace of God. And yet, turn with me back to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. All throughout Jeremiah's ministry, woven into his rebukes, woven into his calls for repentance, woven into his words of judgment Jeremiah was always careful to put words of hope in here look at chapter 31 verse let's pick it up in um, let's look at 31 31 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, which they broke, Verse 33, But this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they will not teach again, each man his neighbor, saying to his brother, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Look at verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Verse 38, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord. And he goes on to describe that whole endeavor. God's saying there's hope. Though I afflict, there is a new covenant coming, there is a restoration. I will not forget you forever. Flip the page of chapter 33, verse 26, and he says something very similar. Verse 25 of chapter 33, Thus says the Lord, If my covenant for a day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, Then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? So God's saying, uh, if my covenant was not fixed, then I might reject them forever. But that's not true, is it? My covenant is fixed. It has been established. And so he says at the very end of 26, But I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. It's not too much and it's not too late. And so Lamentations ends with this, what's going to happen? We know the Lord is sovereign over all. We know He's caused this. We are grief stricken. Lord, restore us, change us, repent. We repent, right? Unless we went too far. And you're just going to stay angry forever. And yet the message of the book of Jeremiah is because of God's faithfulness to his promises, it's never too late. We're never beyond the hope of God's mercy. You say, what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? In your grief, in my grief, whether it's over sin or something else, it is easy to forget the promises of God. And it is easy to think that the affliction and the sorrow is forever and God has just forgotten and he's just done so in those moments is when we need to remember most the promises of god the character of god the provisions of god and to rehearse those things like we saw jeremiah doing himself earlier do not believe the lies of your own emotion in grief Turn to the promises of God. Turn to the character of God. Remember His mercies. Remember His character and faithfulness. And of course, we're talking about you know Old Testament. We live on this side of the cross, don't we? We live with the full provision. God in human flesh is what we're going to sing here in a moment, right? All these Christmas songs that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. We have the full provisions and promises. And how does our Bible go? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Jesus is the same yesterday, for a uh, today, and forever. And we can remember that on days that are hard and days that are full of grief. All right, we're not done though. We're not done. Uh, that's the last chapter, but we have a few more passes over the airport we need to make talking about lament before we land the plane. So we'll talk about those next time. Father, thank you for... Reminders: first of all, that you love us and you are in control. That you love us even in affliction. That you care about our holiness. You care about our walking with you. And so you will bring discipline and affliction as you did here in, in horrible and graphic ways because you love your people and you long for them to be like your son. Father, I pray as we learn these themes ourselves and our own grief our own sorrow lord help us to take our sin seriously help us to look at our sin with horror and wickedness and let that lead us to a godly sorrow that leads us to a true repentance that leads us to change and growth and father never to forget in in moments where our emotions are overwhelming to us and we're tempted to believe that you've forgotten that you are always faithful and true and that we can trust you, Lord. Help us to rehearse those things when we need to, uh, that that we might find you in our affliction. We pray in Jesus' name.